are back. I'm Gervier Brom here with Chamakar Sandu, and we are screen off script. This week, we're getting into Elvis and reflecting on all the major movie and TV news of the week. Our country itself is sick, but it's lost its sense of direction, even its common decency. You don't so much as wiggle the fingers. There's a lot of people saying a lot of things, but in the end, you gotta listen to yourself. In that moment, Elvis the man was sacrificed, and Elvis the god was born. I'm gonna show you what the real Elvis is like tonight! In our first segment, we're talking spoilers for Elvis. If you want to skip around, we got timestamps in the description. Jumat, you're back in Vegas, and we just watched Elvis. I feel like that's some next-level synergy that just happened by default. I mean, talk about the stars aligning, right? If you're gonna yeah, watch an yeah. Elvis movie, and if you're able to watch it in Vegas, it just it just works. And the fact yeah. that I'm in Vegas for International Fight Week and Vegas is so synonymous with Elvis and vice versa. It's just a, a, a great time to be to watching this movie. And I can't wait to get into it with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy that I got to watch this movie after having been in Vegas for at least a little bit, right? Having experienced Vegas and getting a feel of how unique of an environment that place is and right. then getting to see the effect of not only what it had on Elvis, but the effect that Elvis had on the city. And you can still feel that. Like, it still feels like he's just such a presence in the city, even all these years later. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, there's impersonators, there's still Elvis shows. And yeah, I mean, he is part of the fabric, the DNA of this city. Absolutely. But let's get into it. Elvis, Boz Lerman coming back. First question I want to talk about, just in biopics in general, what do you think makes a great biopic? Why do you think a biopic works? What makes it not work? I've been thinking about it for the past couple of days because this one was very specific it told a story i don't know how accurate the story is i don't know how much they fabricated in your opinion what are like the contents of a great biopic well it's almost like what makes a good autobiography right is is it someone that crossed over to the mainstream is it is, a, is it about somebody that lived a unique and interesting life is it a story worth telling did they have ups and downs did they live a life that common folk just you know can't comprehend and when it comes to people People that are famous, whether it's a sports star, an athlete, a musician, an actor, someone in the business world, whatever the case may be, they left an indelible mark on this planet. They have come and gone. And most time, most of the time, biopics are made, you know, when the individual has already passed away, because then you've got almost like a full story to tell from birth to death. And I feel like as long as there's a, you know, a meaty enough and a juicy enough story to tell, and it's in the right hands, then it's going to work and it's going to resonate and it's going to do well. And most of the time, biopics for the most part, especially in the hands of the right studio and the right filmmaker, tend to do pretty well. They do. You know what? I think people know that there's such like Oscar bait at this point. I, I think a great biopic gets rid of a lot of the fluff, only really shows the most poignant moments in that person's life. And they try to tell this thing, like they try to tell as much as they can of that person's story of their life that actually serves the story that they're trying to tell. Accuracy, I don't think is the end all be all. The story is so much more important. And it goes without saying that like casting is so ridiculously important. And if you're watching a performance and you see the actor and instead of the character that they're portraying, it kind of ruins the immersive experience of like what you're actually trying to get across. I was very moved. So every dream that I ever dreamed has come true a hundred times. I learned very early in life that without a song, the day would never end. Without a song, a man ain't got a friend. Without, without a song, the world would never bend. Without a song. So I'll keep singing a song. But yeah, let's talk about the movie. Let's talk about Elvis. Did you like it? Did you hate it? What, what did you think about it? Well, let's do just do the, the build up. Like, you know, we we heard the buzz, right? It got a seven yeah. minute standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival. And we were like, okay, this is interesting. And let's be honest, Baz Luhrmann doesn't make films that often. I think this is only, I think, sixth or seventh movie over the course of the last 25 plus years. So anytime, he's almost like James Cameron in that sense, right? It's like, he's one of those filmmakers that only drops a movie every maybe decade or so, every five, six, seven years. So you know, it's a big deal. You have to pay attention. And I always like a good biopic anyway. I didn't know too much about Austin Butler heading into it, but obviously Tom Hanks is involved. Okay, check. That got me you know, interested. Baz Luhrmann's movie. Okay, I'm in. Goddamn, I really love this movie. And you know how a while ago we were thinking, you know, we hope that anything everywhere all at once, you know, gets its flowers. We, we kind of yeah. 
almost feel like, okay, it might not be the movie that ends up winning any awards during award season. We just hope that it, it gets its flowers and gets nominations just to kind of get yeah, the, yeah. the tip of the cap so that it gets the respect that it's due. This movie, Elvis, I almost feel like this is the front runner to sweep pretty much every category that it's going to be potentially nominated for in about six months from now because it ticks so many boxes knowing what we know about the academy and the makeup of the academy and makeup of the voters and you look at history in terms of what movies tend to do well this ticks so many boxes but we'll talk about that later in terms of just what i felt about the movie like i said i loved it it was a thrill i enjoyed it so much and i'm actually looking forward to maybe watching it a second time if i can if i have the time sometimes i wonder do i like this movie because i like elvis or do i like this movie because the the performances and the filmmaking is so strong i i like this era of music in particular is just something i love so much the era of this kind of music felt so confident and i think that's what's really well done in this fucking movie the idea of a motion is so it feels so genuine but from a very optimistic point of view if that makes any sense and i think it's the most important thing that this movie gets across is holy shit what a performance by austin butler as elvis presley i didn't expect that i really didn't yeah again i had no expectations going in regarding um like performances or you know what i was kind of going into i just knew that it did enough for me to get me in the door buy the cinema ticket and watch the movie uh, and but i have to co-sign what you just said there like we both grew up post elvis's demise you know after he'd already passed away and my only memories as a kid of of elvis was kind of songs that were used as part of commercials and and, and bits and pieces like that and then obviously yeah. i think when oceans 11 came out and we touched on this a little bit in our oceans 11 review it almost revived because again that's another vegas themed movie but it almost revived um some of the elvis songs that i remember at that time there was almost a re-release of all of Elvis's number one hits. And it was like killing it in the music charts. And now I'm a teenager and I'm starting to listen to some Elvis. And and as I've grown up, I've kind of heard the stories, kind of know a fair bit about the Elvis life, but not the minutia, not the detail. And, And again, we aren't here to tell you how accurate this movie is. Obviously, every filmmaker, every actor, everybody involved needs to take some sort of creative license with what they're dealing with. But this movie really helped me better understand his full story and i had no idea about the trials and tribulations he went through and it's kind of bizarre to think now like he passed away at 42 only 42 years of age but you know there's there's so many good things to talk about this movie and i think right at the top of that uh, pile of good things to talk about is was what you just mentioned it's austin butler his performance was just incredible and the one thing i just want to say before we kind of get into the movie the soundtrack to this movie is actually pretty awesome and there's a song that i had no idea i had no idea that austin butler actually sings in the movie and it's on the soundtrack which kind of blows my mind because i genuinely thought they were using uh, rips of like old Elvis performances and just syncing them up but no there's one song in particular when it's young Elvis that Austin Butler's actually singing which is again like I said blows my mind about what he brought to the table in his overall performance I don't want to glance over the soundtrack it's absolutely incredible but like there's something interesting because what Baz Luhrmann does specifically and you kind of got a taste of it in The Great Gatsby is he takes a lot of his films which are period pieces and he updates the music to kind of give it like more of a modern feel and the weird thing about The Great Gatsby is you got so much original music we got like music from like Lana Del Rey who was popping at the time you had music with like Jay-Z and all these other artists and it never felt right to me you're watching all these flappers and people in the 20s kind of listen to hip-hop and doing everything to like rap and EDM and all this kind of stuff and it just didn't feel right at all this movie I feel like he finally got it right because he didn't try to change the music what this movie really did is it it took the sound there and it basically just updated the production they took the songs that we're all familiar with and that we all love from elvis but you know add some hip-hop drums or just just update the production so it sounds so much more crisp and we're not just living in the 50s we're living it's almost like more impactful that the music comes out in this crisp new way that makes you almost like rediscover elvis and all his music in such a unique kind of kind of feel on top of that it's also interesting that of what they really try to get across in this movie, I, I felt, is you could tell that the filmmakers are really trying to show a few things like, yes, Elvis stole his style from a lot of black artists, but also, yes, he was accepted by those musicians as a peer. And I think that's like a really interesting way they kind of approach this music. And it seems like they really do try to do their best to represent the importance of black music in the Elvis story while also balancing plates of like, look at this unicorn, look at this human being. He's so unique and only he could have done 
or he could have been the one that did what he did. It's mm-hmm. such a weird little like plates to spin that like this is the special guy, but also he took a lot of his stuff from over here. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to jump on what you just mentioned about Baz Luhrmann and what he brings to the table when it comes to music and sound and songs and we're not here to say it's been perfect every time when you look back at the the history of movies and his resume but you're absolutely right he nailed it and it's a part of his fingerprint it's a part of his signature his his handprints his fingerprints are all over this movie and it's actually the the, the first i think 10 15 minutes there is such energy with regards to how everything is shot this color of the 50s is hitting you right can this we vibrancy. talk about that first 15 minutes for a second though for sure I, I, how how did it how did that feel as opposed to the rest of the movie because i feel like those are like two very distinct experiences because like the first 15 minutes is like boz lerman his style it's almost like a mace music video yeah that it's like a lot of CGI and a lot of Vegas, right? But I, I felt like the film actually got stronger the further they got away from that, if I'm being completely honest. I enjoyed the first 15 minutes as well as the rest of the movie. And I know exactly what you're saying in terms of being almost like two different styles. I feel like mm. those first 10, 15 minutes, we don't even see Elvis's face for the most part, right? It's kind of setting the tone. It's hitting you with the color blast and the, the editing and the style of shooting. Everything that is literally the Baz Luhrmann style is in that yeah. first 10, 15 minutes. And it, it just almost feels like a fairy tale at times right exactly and it honestly for me it just set the tone it was like okay i'm on this journey i'm on this ride and the the, the best compliment i can give for this first 10 15 minutes is the pacing there was such energy and that pacing didn't really drop even though the style changes as the movie goes on the pacing didn't stop it didn't feel like a two hour 45 minute drag by the time the yeah. movie's over i'm like yo where the hell did the time just go i need to see this again that's how yeah. i feel yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I don't think the pacing was ever an issue. Like, obviously, the, the story of like a biopic, it's gonna, it's gotta go the way it goes. It's gotta slow down at some point. And I haven't heard anybody complain about the pacing of this movie. The oh, neither have I. I just movie. want to compliment the pacing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of crazy, right? Because like, usually when it's a movie that's this long, you're hearing complaints about, wow, this dragged on forever. And uh, I never got that feel. On top of that, just going back to what I was mentioning before, I, I love like how they kind of portray Elvis from that early journey. And that's kind of what I want to talk about, like, at this point is like, he like uh when they're listening to elvis on the radio and they're just like ah turn that off it's a black artist and then he's like no no no, he's white and that is like holy shit it's such a mind-blowing thing in the movie but i love the way they did that because everyone in the audience should see that and be like what the hell is going on this is what it was like at that time and like it kind of just it's a good point of reference to like understand the context of what you're really looking at. And the best part about that sequence, in my opinion, is the introduction of Colonel Tom Parker. It's like his eyes light up. Opportunity yeah. is knocking and he is like a rabid wolverine with saliva coming down his face because he is trying to chase this person that could yeah. potentially be his next carnival act or his next cash cow. He isn't sure right now. But again, from a Tom Hanks point of view, it was just like, oh my God, like he's not playing a good guy. He is playing the absolute heel. He is the yeah. villain. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's not something that Tom Hanks chooses to do that often if you look at his resume. Yeah. So and, that was right. a jarring experience to see that on screen. Very much. The chase is like exactly how I would describe Colonel Tom Parker. Like that's exactly who he is. He is the living embodiment of the chase he's an old carny guy who just wants to make his next buck off somebody and make sure he isn't the person at liability to have to like take any of that financial responsibility because of it he is there to suck your blood and keep it moving and that's where in the movie i never once thought like wow that's a bad performance but the whole time i'm thinking get this guy off my screen i hate him so much he's a legitimate heel he made me hate him and it made me want to watch elvis overcome him and that's such an interesting thing to do because especially that performance it could have been like it was like relatively over the top you know one little tweak to it and it could have felt hokey but it didn't for some reason right and that's like a that's a nice little line to cross and especially for somebody like tom hanks this late in his career to still be able to pull out performances like this what what a gem and i want to just echo what you just mentioned there it's like you're rooting for elvis to overcome this this dude this villain that's like sucking his blood and the movie puts you in a situation where you're like oh come on elvis get through this get through this and you almost forget there is no happy ending here. And it yeah. kind of almost slaps you in the last like sequence, the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie where you're like, you, and again, that's just another compliment. You know, they take you on this incredible journey of like what Elvis you know, goes through, what he has to overcome, the comeback and, and all this kind of stuff. The movies didn't work out, all that kind of stuff, right? And then you're kind of rooting from rooting from, and then, yeah, you just forget like 
He ends up just living out his final years in Vegas, doing the same shtick day in, day out until his body just ends up giving up on him. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because like, we're going to be jumping around a lot, obviously in the timeline, that's kind of what happens in the movie. But like the first time when we go back to see when he kind of gets to see the blues in action. Right. And it's that scene where he's just watching almost like the, like this blues player and these two people dancing and just like sexuality, just like kind of oozing out of the screen from that one little uh, scene in the shack. That's the scene and with B.B. King, right? Yeah, that's before B.B. King. It's uh, right, the early right. one. You know where he's in the shack and then it's instantly juxtaposed with that oh, scene of him going to, yes, him going yes. to church and, yeah. then, and the church, you just see like him be overwhelmed by this feeling of like this black church kind of welcoming him into their, like their conception oh, of God through music. This is when he's a child, essentially. This he's when a he's kid. A child, yeah. Yes, yes. This yes. is just when he's a kid. And, and like, you can see like his relationship with God is like built through music. His relationship with expressing himself is purely built through music. And that juxtaposition of sex and the blues, and you can see the emotionality that he kind of gains from music and also his salvation of his personal self through church and music as well that's elvis in a nutshell he is the juxtaposition of both of those things yeah right and and it's a fucking beautiful thing that the filmmakers did especially putting those scenes right beside each other beautiful stuff man and and i have to say you know i know we've mentioned a few times we don't know how accurate this movie is i think the best compliment that baz lerman has probably received and the movie uh including everybody else involved with this production has probably received is that Priscilla Presley has essentially come out and said, uh, in, and I'm not doing a, giving a direct quote here, but she's essentially said that this is you know, the most accurate portrayal of Elvis I've ever seen. He would have been proud of it, and she's proud of it. And, and that's to say she only met him when he was an adult, but yeah. for her to co-sign it to that level is extraordinary. Listen, she, she met him at a time, you know, obviously when he already had a certain level of fame. And, and mm. you know, we can be honest, at the end of the day, this is... Uh, the one thing is that when someone is raised around the carnival, that means they're a carny too. Yeah. All right. Like they don't present it in this movie and they don't present Elvis as a carny. But, you know, in real life, I would be shocked if he wasn't a carny at some point. And like he doesn't have those kinds of sensibilities. And I'm sure he did. Like that's kind of what like the underlying choices that he made were very money driven just to get that next paycheck. But none of it, like it all kind of stems about like where you kind of learn that kind of stuff in the carnival. Uh, the next thing is like Elvis kind of being like a gateway. I don't want to say the wrong word, but like, I don't want to say drug, but he's a gateway D, right? And I'm saying the other D because they thought through him that it would make like white women want like black men. And I can't say that they're all the way wrong. They're wrong for thinking that that's an issue. Yeah. But in the same way that like Eminem was like an introduction to like rap music for a lot of people, Elvis was certainly a gateway into black culture for, for that time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you mentioned there, you know, was, did he, did he steal, you know, what he kind of like saw, was he inspired by what he saw? Those are two very different words, two de- very different meanings. I, I think they're mutually exclusive. I personally like to think that he was inspired, right? Like you can't, like you don't know anything when you're a kid, you just kind of grow up where you grow up. That's just your upbringing. That's just what it is. And whether it's black music or this culture or that culture, whatever the case may be, that's what you grew up on. That's what your inspiration yeah. was. And that's what you're going to, if you if that feel so, you know, some type, some type of way about it, that's the kind of line of work or profession you're going to get into. And that's going to have a, a massive impact on your style, regardless of yeah. what color you are. And not only that, but he is pop culture. So regardless of what he was listening to, if that's his influence, that's what becomes popular. It just, unfortunately, like, even though he took it, he's still the like vessel that, that, that form of art is going through. And like everything he touched just became like pop culture. His house mm. is pop culture. Everything he did is pop culture. So even if his influences come from different places, coming through that like vessel, it was going to be popular no matter what. The way he dressed, the way he danced, yeah. his sideburns, his hairstyles, uh, the way he talked. Like, you know, I was having a conversation with uh, some friends that I watched a movie with. And it's like, you know, we grew up on pro wrestling and it's like arguably the greatest, most popular wrestler of all time, The Rock madly inspired by elvis you know the way yeah, he had his yeah. sideburns the shirts he used to wear the sunglasses yeah. the shades yeah. even some of the 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 promos that he used to cut the songs that he used to sing right yeah jabroni drive you know heartbreak hotel all this kind of stuff right like yes that's massive impact elvis on multiple generations to come after he'd already passed away yeah and especially like you could see kind of like 
the it goes right in line with that but like you can tell in the later in the movie that there's like a polynesian influence of not only on elvis but what he has on that culture as well it's just widespread this guy like i said he is pop culture right and uh, it's interesting because there's one scene that i actually love it's when he's feeling like he's trapped by fame right and he's trying just to like leave his house he abruptly leaves and he just goes to a black neighborhood and he just goes to see bb king and uh you mentioned it before but just seeing the amount of love that he was getting in that particular street, like he felt like the fucking man, yeah. right? Like the same way you're describing the rock and the rock feels like the man, even these days, he still feels like man. But in the nineties, this guy felt like the man. And this is how Elvis feels to me. Like I just love seeing how charismatic he was and just how smooth he is, right? Yeah. Like, just tripping with molasses like that dude is just so cool that's one of the biggest compliments i also want to give this movie is the various stages of elvis we see from a kid to a teenager to a young yeah. adult to the comeback story all the way up until the final scene you know where it, and again i'm going to be jumping around a little bit but the way they cut in those final scenes to the real performance the real elvis it's no longer austin butler again just it just hit home that here yeah. we go we're about to see his final performance and it's no longer austin butler it's it's the real film footage of elvis's final performance and it's uh it's sad and it's heartbreaking at the end but you, they take you on this journey you see elvis yeah. at every single stage of his life man that's what's amazing about austin butler's performance because he gets the cool part right but getting the cool part right is one thing but watching him on the fall off yeah. is also very interesting because it feels like when he lost his edge and the world kind of started developing theirs he didn't follow the culture right? He knew what was like happening on the come up. He felt like he was like with it. And then you could see as he's listening to his manager, listening to the people around him that just want to be like safe with the money and the people that are, you know, living off of him. It's interesting to see when someone loses their way because of money. And we see this story in Hollywood all the time over and over, but it's a tale that's all this time because it's so universal. It's a, it's an uh, incredible story. It really is. And like I said, so far, word of mouth online, the friends that I've watched it with, I'm not hearing any any bad negative reaction to it so far. It's um, it's gotta be it's gonna be interesting to kind of monitor how it performs at the box office, especially in the coming weeks with so many big blockbusters releasing. Whether it, yeah. it can be good enough to sustain a run where it can make you can tell there's definitely money on the screen here. Like they didn't you know cheap out in terms of the production values. I can't imagine who like growing up and watching like somebody like Elvis and like actually living through that and then watching the movie like 50 years later, that must be such a Wild. trip. Yeah. Like, I can't even imagine what's the modern equivalent of somebody who like in today's age, in the past, like let's say 10, 20, 30 years, that is so popular that when their biopic is told in 50 years or 40 years or 30 years, it's just like, that's going to be a trip for us to live through. I have one person in my head, but I'm curious to see who you would say. I'm thinking it's going to be someone like either a Michael Jackson maybe a Madonna from the rap game, someone like an Eminem, I, I don't know, some Jay-Z, something like that. that. That comes to mind. I feel like Eminem's an interesting one be just because 8 Mile exists and yeah. he basically told a similar story to his own. That's true. Jay-Z is going to be an interesting one. I think the most interesting is Kanye West. Oh, yeah, right? of like, course, absolutely, yeah. Like the most controversial figure I can remember in my lifetime and like just controversy after controversy. Imagine just trying to make like a th two and a half hour movie of Kanye West moments. Like I could write that movie and I would have a hard time narrowing it down just off the top of my head. But yeah, let's get into our categories. Uh, John, who did you have for best character? It's easy, man. It's Austin Butler. <laughs> I, I feel like yeah. he, I feel like a star is born with this guy. He's 30 years old. I was not aware of anything that he was in prior to Elvis, whether it be TVs or movies, nothing. So for me, an absolute fresh face. And I can't wait to see if, in fact, he does get awards in about six months' time for his role playing Elvis. And more importantly, how he uses this platform and parlays this into a career because a new contender has emerged amongst a plethora of very, very talented young actors in Hollywood right now. Yep. We talk about that all the time, leading men. Like who's going to be those next guys that kind of step up and become like, you know, the Brad Pitts, the Leos, et cetera, et cetera. And to see somebody like uh, Austin Butler, who I'm only really familiar off him off Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he plays Tex as one of the Manson people, right? I saw that on his IMDb list and I'm like, I don't even remember his performance. Like he's the, he's the guy on the horse. He's the guy on the horse. I, right. He comes at the end and he's the one with the gun. He's like, he's the one that says, I'm the devil. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Like even at that performance, you can tell he's good. And I remember seeing around that time that he's going to play Elvis. And it's just interesting to see 
that it came to fruition and he did such a great job with it. But yeah, let's get into best scene. Who you got for that? Or what do you got for that? Honestly, there's so many incredible scenes that you can pick from. It could be montages. It could be early Elvis, late Elvis. Uh, I decided to go with when he's essentially getting ready to make his comeback on live TV, on the live TV special, right? Where he's kind of wearing the kind of like the, the, the black leather outfit and whatnot. And there's this moment where because of the success of that comeback live TV special, he wants to do a world tour, right? He wants to go to different countries and explore different territories and do stadiums and, and all that kind of stuff, right? But what happens? He gets sucked in to doing a six-week stint in Vegas, right? Because of Colonel Tom Parker's kind of pitch to him about doing this Vegas show. And that ultimately ends up being where he winds up spending the rest of his life. He he does like, you know, a US tour and they show that kind of like in a montage, but ultimately he ends up spending the rest of his life in Vegas. And it's a great scene because for me, it made me think of a what if. It was like a what if moment that could have changed the entire trajectory of his life. Like had he gone and done the world tour, go to Europe, go to Japan and go to all these places he wanted to go and never ended up doing a stint in Vegas period. Like, would he still be alive today? His whole life would have been completely different. And it's such a pivotal scene in the movie. And, and I really enjoyed how they put that together. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting to think about that that scene as well, just because even at, at that time, you can kind of see the security and like that whole becomes like a source of anxiety for him. And also like the viewer, they, they, they cut the scenes together so well, where you're starting to feel that same anxiety that Elvis is feeling. And you're just like, fuck, like, what is he going to do? This is such an anxious, anxious situation. I kind of almost sympathize with him for playing it safe at that time. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, for me though, it kind of, I have a few different ones. I had to go almost in order the first one. And you know, I don't know how it plays with everybody, but the scene where he's in that first pink suit, and he's doing his first performance on stage and he just starts doing the wiggle and the girls are going out of their mind. I think just watching that and seeing how it's happening, it's, it feels like it's so fucking dramatic and it's like, that's not realistic. But then you start thinking about like my experiences in concerts and all. I think that's, that's not that bad. That's, that's feels very like accurate. And it feels like if somebody with that kind of presence uh, and also like Elvis being the guilty pleasure that he was at the time, as far as uh, being a white musician that like people could listen to, even though he's technically this forbidden fruit of like black music a lot of the times, that is like a weird little balance to play. And you can kind of see the temptation that kind of is like oozing out of all these girls that are sitting in the crowd just looking Come at Come on, him. you got to get on in. They've already announced you on the radio. Come on, let's go. He's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee. Give him a warm hayride welcome to a Mr. Elvis Presley. And uh, my second one is the time that he got arrested. Like you said, that that Austin Butler actually performed that song. Fucking absolutely incredible scene. So passionate in that scene. Austin Butler, absolutely fantastic. Just as a fan of Elvis, the medley of hit that concert that you mentioned, where he's just doing hit after hit after hit. Just as a fan of his music, that was just so much fun. But for me, the scene that was the best scene of the entire movie is where he's sitting on the Hollywood sign. And this is where what felt like a what if moment for me. He had those producers that were helping him find his vision and finally break out of like the commercialness that he was starting to become. And he's starting to become like, you know, the guy who's selling appliances. And then these guys come in, give him a fresh vision and basically give him a whole new fresh uh, breath of fresh air that revitalize his career only to kind of fall back into bad habits again. And, you know, go into the situation of like how he's, you know, relying on drugs to get through life and falling under like Colonel Tom Parker to like make all his decisions for him. It was just like, if he just had followed the right people, listen to the right people, everything would have been different for him. His legacy would have been so different. And uh, yeah, that kind of goes into like the last question. Tell me, star rating wise, five being the best, zero being the worst. Where did you end up rating this one? It's a it's an easy one for me. Uh, this is my second five star movie of the year, following everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm giving Elvis five stars. I can't recommend it enough. It's one of the best movies of 2022, and I really feel confident that it's going to do really well come award season. Yeah, yeah, I'm not mad at that at all. Uh, I went with a 4.5. I think it's one of the best movies of the year, one of the best performances of the year. I'd be shocked if it doesn't win some major awards. And just kind of reflecting on the movie, imagine being Elvis and feeling like he doesn't have an enduring legacy. Because that's what he says at the end. He's like, man, I just didn't have that hit. And he had a whole catalog that people still listen to to this day. And it's just kind of crazy to see the kind of the perception that he have of himself and seeing how defeated he was by the end. And it's just like, 
man, like it's just such a bummer to see somebody that amazing not recognize their own greatness by the time you know it was closer to the end of their journey. Such yeah. a bummer. It is, really but uh, is. yeah, it, it's it's unfortunate that the movie kind of ends on a sour note. Like that's life, and that's really what happened. But it's just the first like portion just to watch that guy's rise and see how much of a charismatic person he was. And again, massive credit to Austin Butler. He really, I feel like for a generation, they're going to become Elvis fans purely because of this. They're going to stay Elvis fans for a long, long, long time after this. Yeah. And, and the other thing I want to mention, and I, and I know we touched on it, but we didn't maybe go too depth too too deep into it. Cause Austin Butler is the, 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 the show stopper in this one, but man, Tom Hanks um, playing Colonel Tom Parker. Like I had no idea about the Colonel Tom Parker story. Like that alone, I had no idea about the relationship with Elvis and I had no idea the impact he had him from a negative point of view on his family, the drugs, the doctor, and almost using and abusing him. I didn't know about this. I didn't know this element of the Elvis Presley story. So for Tom Hanks to take a role like that uh, was just mind-blowing. And I feel like he would also, you know, get his flowers in terms of best supporting actor and what have you. And Tom Hanks doesn't really miss that often. So for him to take a a chance like this, where it's... um, essentially a villain that he's playing kudos yeah. to him yeah yeah that's everything for elvis but let, let's get into some of these new stories for this week mm. uh, first thing just to kind of talk about what we were talking about like kind of as a follow-up for last week uh obi-wan kenobi writer Stuart Beatty says that the project was originally planned as a film trilogy he says when the decision was made not to make any more spin-off films after solo came out joby came on and took my scripts and turned it from two hours to six i did not work with them at all I just got credit for the episodes because it was all my stuff. It's kind of funny because like, obviously this seems very uh, salty, Mm. but at the same time, it's interesting to see how Disney kind of made that pivot. Like this was originally going to be a trilogy. I can't even imagine like that first movie would have been very disappointing. Well, yeah. I'm wondering if what we got would have been part one of the trilogy and and kind of going back to what he just mentioned there, like, like I think, like we spoke about when we reviewed it, give me the two-hour movie version of this. I didn't need six episodes. Like you know, yeah. it got better as we got along, but like I think the pacing, the overall structure would have been so much better and a much more enjoyable experience if it was just a a ninety-minute, two-hour, made for Disney Plus streaming movie rather than six episodes. But listen, at the end of the day, we know how this works, right? Disney Plus is a subscription service. Six yeah. episodes of this means that people at the very least are going to be locked into two months that's just the way the business model is so i get it it's just unfortunate sometimes we're going to get hits and misses and sometimes it's going to be a little bit in the middle with obi-wan kenobi it was a little bit in the middle like we said last week it got better as we got along but it was worth it because of that final episode so we're still good there i actually think it ended up being for the best that's kind of what it felt like with the direction of star wars where it was going it was if they're doing movies like solo that means they would have gone and like rehashed a lot of older characters. This like solo flopping almost was like a good thing. It made them kind of readjust and make choices that like, okay, cool. Let's talk about the future of this franchise instead of just rehashing the past over and over. Next, Taika Waititi says that his Star Wars film will not begin filming this year. I'm still trying to figure out what the story is, he says. Uh, it's interesting to see just because Kathleen Kennedy did mention that this is going to be the next Star Wars movie. And if the story isn't even finished, I, I can't imagine we're going to be getting this movie, you know, maybe in the next two, three years. I'm not mad at it. Nail it. Get it right. Get the story right. And if Taika Waititi, you don't want to rush Taika Waititi, all right? Let him, let yeah. him do his thing. Let him make sure he's happy before they start filming and before they start production. There's no rush. You, you own the IP. When you, when it, whenever it drops, it's going to do well regardless. But we just want to make sure from a critical standpoint that the fans are happy, that we enjoy what we get from them in terms of the content. So if they want to take a little bit more time to do that, that's fine by me. I completely agree. Uh, also speaking of uh, you know his movies, uh, Thor Love and Thunder is coming out next week. Chris Hemsworth said he wants to keep playing Thor in the MCU. He says, I'll come back for more and more until someone kicks me off the stage. I love it. My whole career has been based around me playing this character. We'll see what the fans want. As, as you know, we haven't even seen this movie yet. And Thor is the one character that I still want to see more and more of. I agree. Like, we got the full arc with Tony Stark. We kind of got the full arc with Captain America. But Thor, like, almost had a slow start. And, it, it, yeah. it, it you know, he didn't really start to kind of shine until much later during his run and i feel like we've we just recently got there with him and i want to stay with this journey for another five ten years so if chris hemsworth is down to play thor for the next i don't know couple of phases sign me up man i love i love all the four movies and i love every movie that he's a part of right now i don't love all the thor movies but i've loved ragnarok and i can't wait for love and thunder and i think like the inclusion of taika waititi 
uh, for Disney, obviously in general, but like specifically with Marvel, he's just been like a breath of fresh air for that franchise, man. He, he, if you ask me, he saved that, he saved the Thor character because that character could have felt way less important. And, you know, maybe they would have killed him off a lot earlier and he wouldn't have felt very important. It would have been like, all right, cool. He's just part of the, the sacrifice for phase one or phase two or phase three or whatever it is. Right. And, and he wouldn't have felt important this time. He feels like what if, if they were to kill off the Thor character, that would feel like a massive deal to me. Yeah, because he's a god, right? When it, yeah. when it came to like Captain America and Tony Stark, they're still humans. They, they can still, you know, be killed. So there was almost kind of like this, um, I guess, uh, you know, element to them that anything can happen anytime. Whereas Thor, because he's a god, it's going to have to take someone on his level to a- absolutely wipe him out. And when that moment, if that moment happens, that should be an epic moment and it should be an epic movie for it. You know, you would imagine that it would be somebody named Gore, the God butcher would be uh, somebody who might be able to do that. But uh, speaking of new master, Hey, it's Thor again. You know, the God of thunder. Listen, buddy, if you don't log off this game immediately, I'm going to fly over to your house, come down to that basement you're hiding in, rip off your arms and shove them up your butt. Oh, that's right. Yes, go cry to your father, you little weasel. Speaking of Christian Bale, he did actually mention that while he was promoting Thor Love and Thunder, he said that he would play Batman again if Christopher Nolan asked him. His uh, exact quote was, if Chris Nolan ever said to himself, you know what, I've got another story to tell. And if he wished to tell that story with me, I'd be in. That's an interesting revelation to me because I did, I never expected that. He always talked about how, you know, they planned a trilogy, they did the trilogy and they didn't want to push it. Mm-hmm. And now for him to kind of reopen that thought process again, man, if I'm DC, I'm fucking thinking, what can we do to make this happen again? Well, not if you're DC, if you're Warner Brothers, right? Yeah. And, and it's like, do they even have the relationship there right now with Christopher Nolan to try and make that happen? But Jeez, let me... Yeah, I completely forgot about that fallout. My gosh. Yeah. If that wasn't the case, if everyone's rosy and everyone's happy and, and they can, if they can mend things... I'm I'm always down to live in the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight series world. If they want to come back for one movie or for another trilogy or for another couple, I'm cool with it. An older Batman, yeah. And there were so many characters that they didn't delve into. Just like I love living in the Matt Reeves Batman world. Like that, I'm absolutely cool with that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. This is an interesting quote from, from Christian Bale because you know he doesn't need another Batman movie. He's doing just fine. You know, he's he's you know when he's involved in a project whether it's, you know, obviously now he's in, in, in part of the MCU. But outside of that, every time I see, oh, there's a Christian Bale movie, I'm going to watch that because he's a yeah, legit, yeah. incredible actor and he doesn't make bad choices that often in terms of, you know, roles that he plays. So, yeah, but if he wants to play it, I'm down. I'm absolutely yeah. down. Why not? You know what, though? I just think there's such an opportunity of not only bringing both of them back, right? And you know what? At the end of the day, fallouts happen all the time with studios and directors. That kind of shit happens and they can figure it out and make it work again. But I think more importantly, this is a great opportunity to tell a story that hasn't been told. The older Batman story that they you know, wanted to tell with Ben Affleck that they never really got a chance to tell. And now to have you know, an established character, the, the, the person that we kind of grew up with playing Batman, and then to see that person play an older version of Batman, I think that opens up a whole new line of possibilities. And it opens up like, you know, they really didn't do much. If you really think about it with that franchise, as far as expanding the world, if they wanted to bring in a Robin, if they wanted to bring in, you know, any other character that kind of works with Batman or, you know, a whole, a whole plethora of villains that they really haven't touched yet, that option is still there. And I'm not even saying that we have to get this now. Robert Pattinson could have his entire run. And then in five or 10 years, when they're thinking, all right, cool, well, what's the next Batman project? this could be that thing. And I would love for that to be like a, a story just as far as like two separate trilogies being told through like the same kind of uh, group and, and telling it through that, that same linear kind of storytelling. I would fucking love to see that happen. Yeah. And plus, I think the way The Dark Knight Rises essentially ends is Joseph Gordon-Levitt is essentially teased as, you know, becoming the Robin, right? Yeah. So you could just, jump on that and see, you know, time has passed. He becomes Robin. Does Batman come back or, or what happened? There's so many different directions they can take it in. And there's still, so you know, Catwoman's still you know, already introduced in that world. So there's still so you many know, villains that they haven't explored in that world. There's so much time too. You don't even have to continue it right from when it happened. Right. You could have it where, you know, if Joseph Gordon-Levitt isn't the right fit anymore, you could kill him. You could literally mm-hmm. just kill him in that first movie. And then that way for the next two movies, you're dealing with the guilt of Batman having to like, 
deal with the fact that he was never able to, you know, save Robin in whatever situation. There's just so many different directions you could take the story. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, as far as the next story goes, Daniel Kaluuya, he says that it's an interesting thing that he said about Get Out. He says, I think Get Out and Jordan Peele have changed what's possible and actually moved cinema forward. And you realize how few films can move cinema forward. This is an interesting quote to me just because that's facts. That's true. There are very few films that actually in modern cinema, especially that can say that they were so impactful that they are a part of pop culture and moving the genre forward, whatever genre that is. This movie is absolutely that. It's one of my favorite films ever. It's one of my favorite horror films. It's such a fantastic exploration into horror and like referencing everything from the past, talking about the social commentary that goes into it. It's just a fantastic movie. Uh, I kind of wanted to get your idea of like just where where do you think Get Out kind of sits in that like grand spectrum of pop culture and films in the modern cinema? It def- it's definitely there. Like it, the, the 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 mark has been made, and you can't take it away from the movie. And what I love about you know the horror genre specifically, and you guys know I'm not the biggest fan of horror, but horror ha- the genre has had this thing where almost every decade or every generation has the preeminent horror director or horror filmmaker going all the way back to Alfred Hitchcock, right? And it's almost like the next filmmaker in that genre almost takes the baton and, and like almost is like leveling it up, moving it forward, you know, expanding it and like really figuring out ways to expand what it means to create a horror movie uh, without just kind of ripping off ideas that have been done from like the 60s 70s 80s and 90s and it's um, so competitive now it's more competitive now than ever because it's not just jordan peele it's ari aster it's uh, robert eggers there's just so many different directors that are really yeah. pushing the genre forward it's a beautiful yeah. thing to see get out sorry man okay. get out yo yeah, on top of that, Daniel Kaluuya did say as well that he said he's really proud of Jordan Peele to be on someone's first film is such a vulnerable moment. The fact that he's got to this level and able to have me part of this uh, this level of budget with Nope, uh, I just feel really proud of Jordan Peele. And Jordan Peele also, just to continue that, he mentioned that Nope is a horror epic, but it has some points that are meant to elicit a very audible reaction in the theater. So hopefully when we go there and see it, we hear a lot of Nope. Jordan Peele also says that I wrote Nope in a time when we were a little bit worried about the future of cinema. So the first thing I knew is I wanted to create a spectacle. That's music to my ears, man. Mm-hmm. This is like, this is like the kind of, this is my kind of filmmaker. You know, as someone who really cares about filmmaking and someone who's such a nerd about this stuff that like, I feel like whenever I watch this guy's movies, I can watch it multiple times and I can gain so much every single time I watch these movies. Listen, you don't have to convince me because I love Get Out and I really enjoyed Us as well. And I feel like every time Jordan Peele is the guy that's behind the camera, it's like, sign me up. I'm watching it every single day of the week. So yeah, I can't wait. I'm excited. I I love the trailer. I, I love that quote that he just gave. And I'm actually really excited. And I'm also interested to see how it performs and also, you know, compares because I feel like we're on a bit of a run right now. It's like Top Gun Maverick, Elvis, we've got Thor coming out, you know, Nope is coming out. All of a sudden, it feels like this is a special summer of movies, right? Yeah, I completely agree. It feels like we're going through like a little bit of a moment right now where it's not just these big franchises are coming in and running shit. It's not just an Avengers movie that like is there to like be that $2 billion hit. Like globally, it, it feels like we're getting all these movies that like shouldn't be working right now. Why is Top Gun Maverick such a hit? Why is Elvis going to be such a hit? I hope Nope is a hit. I hope Bullet Train is a hit. Like so many different movies that like feel like original stories. And I would love for that to be like the theme of the summer and something that kind of pushes cinema forward because the more we just rely on specific franchises, I think it kind of alienates a lot of other people that may be watching these movies. I completely agree. I feel like we're getting so many different flavors. There's such variety. And that's like an incredible thing to experience right now. It's not just the same old, same old, you know, cookie cutter studio produced movie that's just on the conveyor belt to be that summer blockbuster. We're getting a bit yeah. of everything. And that is music to my ears. It really is that that's what we're going through I right com- now. 
Completely agree. But yeah, let's get into uh, one of our like last segments of the show and something that we were going to do a preview last week of uh, AEW and New Japan doing their Forbidden Door pay-per-view. I kind of, we didn't want to do the preview because the buildup was, you know, a mixed bag. Like it was some good stuff, some bad stuff, but it was a little lackluster. We didn't have much to kind of hold on to, but we knew the show was going to be something different and something special. And we wanted to talk about it regardless. And I kind of, I'm really interested to see your thoughts because usually we watch these pay-per-views together. Double or yeah. nothing, we were there live. Right. Every other pay-per-view we've been watching together. You have a, a different perspective. You watched it with you know people who aren't generally the biggest wrestling fans and you got to watch it from a very different perspective of myself who's sitting there eating this up, biggest wrestling nerd and just like, this is like what I hope for for my professional wrestling. So I'm right. very curious to see what was your thought process of forbidden door sure so to set the table i'm a massive fan of AEW, and i've been watching the product for a long time now i'm not the biggest fan of new japan pro wrestling there's just only so much you know time i, I can dedicate to dedicate to pro wrestling and, and honestly the, my knowledge of new japan really comes from you right i didn't get to see okada and kenny omega you know wrestle ever until they got that six star rating from dave Meltzer, and it kind of like caught wildfire right and then yeah. every now and then I've, I've tuned into a couple of matches here and there. And that did have an impact on my, I guess, viewing experience of Forbidden Door. Like I had just seen Will Ospreay wrestle for the very first time a week ago on Dynamite. And I'm like, from that one performance, I'm like, okay, I'm hooked. Will Ospreay versus Orange Cassidy is now the match that I'm looking forward to most on the entire card. And everybody has their own kind of like take in terms of what they're looking forward to. But that was for me. Here's what I liked. Here's what I didn't like. And here's my overall general sentiment for, of Forbidden Door. I thought it was, for me, a good pay-per-view. I didn't think it was a great pay-per-view. And I think where it was, there were things missing for me was my lack of knowledge from the New Japan side of things in terms of who these wrestlers are, their backstory, their angle. And obviously with only four weeks uh, to build this pay-per-view, it wasn't a case of too many stories. It was almost a case of like dream matches. And I feel like if you're a hardcore New Japan fan and an AW fan, this was right up your street. You're going to eat this up and scoop this up. Unfortunately, I'm not that audience, right? But that being said, there was still a lot I did enjoy. And Luckily enough for me, the one match that I was looking forward to most ended up being my favorite match of the entire show. Will Ospreay and Orange Cassidy, I thought, tore the house down. I'm like a Will Ospreay fan for life right now. It's great to see Orange Cassidy come back. And it wasn't like a gimmicky, you know, fun match. It was actually a legit serious match. I thought they told a great story. But yeah, in overall, in general, maybe they can learn from... The, the time they allowed themselves to build to this pay-per-view if they do Forbidden Door every year so to give it a bit more of a runway. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was a, it was a good pay-per-view. I'm not saying it's poor, but it, I wouldn't categorize it for me anyway as like one of the, the great pay-per-views that I've seen offered from an AEW fan perspective, if that makes sense. That's interesting. It's funny because, uh, yeah, I feel like this was, for me, the, the, the pay-per-view of the year. Wow. Like by by a mile, like it's uh, this to Revolution are definitely the that show for me. Uh, it feels like that's almost like the consensus online too of what I'm seeing. Maybe it's just like you know my uh, my bubble that I'm living in. But there's a few different takeaways I have from this event. Number one, it's a massive love letter to professional wrestling, right? It's it's a bunch like you can tell just by those fans that are in the arena in Chicago. When you look at that arena from the jump from the first people that came out to the last people that came out, that crowd was hot all freaking night. And I love them for it. What a fantastic audience. On top of that, the one thing that I think, uh, I think a lot of people, like a lot of different companies, AEW, New Japan, they bring very unique things to the, to the table, right? Like when New Japan does single matches, they do them in a very specific way. They're so structured and they're so well told in terms of story. Uh, New Japan doesn't do multi-man tag team matches in such an interesting way, in my opinion. I'm usually skipping like those matches for uh, Wrestle Kingdom or Dominion or whatever. There's also like always a few multi-man matches that I just kind of glance over, not really paying attention to. Let's go like watch these singles matches because that's really what I'm paying attention to in a New Japan show. AEW, on the other hand, is the best tag team wrestling company on the planet that I've ever seen in my life. In my actual fandom of what I've actually experienced, tag team wrestling has never been better, right? That you always hear about tag team wrestling in the 80s and stuff like that, but like, I didn't get to live through that. So I don't have that same kind of perspective. I'm seeing that right now. And for me, watching, you know, 
uh, the Jericho Appreciation Society with Suzuki having that incredible opener with Eddie Kingston, Wheeler Yuta, and Shota Imunu. What that shows me is that just for this whole card, not only does AEW and New Japan have tremendous stars that they can rely on, even despite people having so many injuries, but they have all these young guys that people are starting to get really excited about. When Shota started powering up, it started feeling like, do they have a young Tanahashi on their hands? Right when when Wheeler Yuta is getting pumped up and getting his shine, it's starting to feel like they really have a guy there. Sammy, same kind of feel. And then uh, you can say that thing, that same thing about a lot of these multi-man tag matches, especially when you talk about that uh, winner-take-all triple threat tag team match, FTR versus United Empire versus Rapungi Vice. FTR is one of the most over and naturally organically over acts in all of wrestling. They always get such a massive pop. It feels like. They can do anything and the crowd is just going to eat it up. And they're following the story so goddamn well. And to watch the whole crowd be so invested in FTR and see like how much they're gaining momentum. It feels like they're on a collision course with the young buck once again, who they just beat a few weeks ago. They're on such a collision course to when that match actually happens. I would not be surprised if it's the main event of the next pay-per-view because that's how big of an event it feels like to me. Both acts are so ridiculously over. And it's only a matter of time before they are showcased in a next level, especially with a situation where they don't technically have their world champion available to them. I think uh, if, if CM Punk can't show up for all out, I would love to see that match, maybe a two out of three falls match, maybe some sort of stipulation where they finally get to clash and settle it in the ring in like the highest stage possible. And we've seen the young bucks deliver in uh, stipulation matches in the past. And they're fucking phenomenal every single time. Yeah, there were definitely a bunch of matches that I really enjoyed. Uh, for me, it was definitely Will Ospreay and Orange Cassidy. That for me, if you, if you said to me, what was your favorite match of the entire card? That was a, yeah. that was it. But the, you're right. The opening match was incredible. It kind of set the table. I'm kind of glad they gave them like 20 odd minutes. Um, it was like they had plenty of time to work with. One question I had for you um, was regard actually regarding the main event. So Moxley versus Tanahashi. So Moxley becomes the interim AEW heavyweight champion. He's going to be on, on course to now unify that championship with CM Punk uh, down the road. I thought it was a really good match. And, you know, Moxley, you know, busted open blood. It was just like, you know, a re- that's what Tanahashi does. He yeah. tells the story of struggle so freaking well. And you can watch him, right? Like you can see this crowd is not like super invested. Like, you know, they're big fans of Tanahashi. You can tell they're hardcore fans, but they're Mox fans too, right? Sure. They're excited for Mox at the start of this match. You can watch the momentum kind of shift by the end. And by the end, the crowd is chanting for Ace, right? They're chanting for Tanahashi. And that's how heartfelt his performances are. By the time you get to the end of it, they're so invested in this guy. They were thinking, I want this Japanese guy to win over my guy. That's kind of crazy to me. But sorry, continue. Yeah, no. So my actual question uh, isn't regarding the match itself, because I thought it was a fantastic match. And they kind of got to that desk. And, And honestly, even prior to the match, I thought, there's a possibility Tanahashi could win. And I could see yeah. they could literally go back to the original match they wanted to CM Punk versus Tanahashi, but this time to unify the championship. So there was definitely kind of like stakes involved. I don't know which way they were going to go. But they get to this position where Moxley wins. It's a huge moment for him, especially what he's been through this year, coming back, main eventing, closing a, a pay-per-view in Chicago, Forbidden Door, just like a, a real big moment. What I didn't like, though, is the aftermath Running of that the moment. End, yeah. I thought this is a this is a pay-per-view, right? And I thought to myself, why are you using this as a vehicle to now build up to a TV show, Blood and Guts, in like 96 hours, right? If it was me, and again, I'm curious to hear your take. And you can obviously, you know, give the fours and the against and the pros and cons of why they made the decisions that they did for the aftermath of Mox winning. But if it was me and I was the booker, I'm like Mox. You're going to win. You're in Chicago. You're going to take a moment. You're going to grab the mic and you're going to cut a promo that they're going to use to eventually lead up to and build up that eventual CM Punk match. You're in Chicago. CM Punk was supposed to close the show here. You just became the interim AEW heavyweight champion. Now let's go and start start planting those seeds to the eventual matchup with CM Punk. That's how I would have booked it. The way they ended up using that moment in the aftermath to build up to blood and guts, I thought... I didn't, I didn't personally like it. I'm just curious to see what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I actually kind of agree. I, I, I enjoy that take, actually, because, yeah, you're right. It would have been a very interesting moment to watch Moxley kind of cut a promo on Chicago or cut, cut it on CM Punk. It's interesting, though, because would that have gotten a heel reaction? 
would that have been something that sets off John Moxley in a in a kind of trajectory that he's not really headed towards? Because that's not I don't think that's the story they're trying to tell. I don't think Moxley is the kind of guy that is the healer. Phase. And by the way, I'm if not he walks on the mic and just starts cutting shit on CM Punk. I'm not even saying that it would have to be a heel promo. It could just be like a like almost like a shoot promo. Like you're in Chicago, like you could like there's ways to cut a promo where you're not trying to become a heel or anything like that, or like go on this journey where you are the heel. But I was just saying, like to like it could be even be a, a promo where you're you're giving respect to CM Punk or, or something mm. like I don't know how, but to, I don't to build know. I, I just that don't... unification match, I think would have been the move in my opinion, rather than a ninety six hours. I get that, but I think like the immediate goal is like get people to watch uh, Blood and Guts. Obviously, that's sure. always a goal. But on top of that, it was uh, I, I think the real thought process is number one, feature the the Blood and Guts special that's coming up on Wednesday. But more importantly, it's to show that look at this other guy we just got. Because really, what they did is they made Claudio Castagnoli, aka Antonio Cesaro, who also debuted that night and was fantastic as well. It made me think, okay, cool. This guy is in a finally like a main event spot right off the top. And it perceptually made me think, all right, cool. This guy feels way more important right off the top than he did ever in the WWE, if you ask me, right? He was featured in a main event position right away. So I don't know if, uh, I think that's what kind of AEW's kind of booking philosophy is. It's not just all right, cool. This is Moxley's moment. Because technically, it's not really Moxley's moment, right? It's an interim championship. It's a celebration of like professional wrestling. It's a celebration of like nerdy professional wrestling. All these guys are so over with this crowd. I don't know if there's anything that you could have accomplished more for uh, for, for Moxley in that moment, if I'm being honest. I think it might have been a better situation to feature somebody like Claudio Castagnoli and like give him that spot, make him feel prominent, make him feel really important. I would love for somebody like Claudio to... Uh, to get like a featured spot like this and then maybe pivot and become like the ROH world champion, become the guy that like puts on badass matches in ROH in the Blackpool Combat Club where, you know, he maybe he's not going to be the world champion in AEW, especially if it's going to be a situation where like Moxley's on top of him, Brian Danielson's on top of him. Somewhere like ROH, I feel like he could be a real prominent character in that. And this would have been like a great spot to build towards and i feel like they kind of did accomplish that and also they made him feel really special when uh, the crowd made him feel so special in that debut that pop was so tremendous and i'm so glad he ended up coming to AEW instead of staying somewhere like WWE because this moment would have never happened had he gone back to WWE. yeah that's obviously something that i was expecting heading into the pay-per-view it's called forbidden door so you knew that somebody was gonna like make a, a surprise appearance and a new signing and he's an incredible talent and i feel like uh, yeah He's so much better suited to being in an AEW in terms of what he brings to the table and, and the kind of talent he can work with in WWE. So I thought it was a fantastic signing. I actually um, love the, the fact that he came out, had his match. I would have stopped it there. I wouldn't have actually brought him out uh, again later on in the show. I, I, for me anyway, from my experience, I, I kind of almost felt like it took away from like the, the incredible debut and the match that he had. I would have been like, you know what? You can always you know make him a top guy by coming out on, on Wednesday and, and like interrupting Moxie or something like that. If, you, if that's the kind of angle and the, the path you want to take him on. We'll see though. Like, was that moment worth it? Is he actually going to be a main event guy or a top guy? Or is he just going to have the incredible dream matches with the talent on the roster? And was that for nothing? Yeah. We're going to find out literally in a couple of days. We're recording this on a Monday, yeah. so we're going to know, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Everyone will know at this point. And we're going to, yeah. you know, this is recorded uh, before Blood and Guts gets a chance to happen. I'm very excited to see what happens with Blood and Guts. But let's get into our last segment of the show. Let's get wrecked. Our weekly recommendation segment. Chumud, what is Sandu's pick this week? I'm in Vegas. It's I'm in America. We're heading into the Independence Day weekend, July 4th weekend. So I thought it was only appropriate for me to recommend Born on the 4th of July from 1989. I feel like this is, you know, one of Tom Cruise's best performances. And like, he's obviously, you know, having a great moment right now with his first billion dollar movie with, with Top Gun Maverick. But honestly, if anyone that just grew up with Tom Cruise, mostly in the 90s and the 2000s, go back and watch this movie. This guy really put on risky performances, man, really put himself out there and took some chances on some roles. So like I said, I feel like in this movie, it's one of Tom Cruise's best performances, but also on the flip side, I feel like Oliver Stone is absolutely in his element as the film's director. It's not it's not quite the type of movie you enjoy. It's it's more so the kind of movie that is more thought provoking. So if that's up your alley, then watch Born the Fourth of July. Awesome. Uh, for me, you know, we just watch a biopic. What's a biopic that I want to recommend? So for me, I'm going with The Social Network. Uh, at its best, The Social Network is the most crisp 
and refined film experience I think maybe I've ever had, right? Like the writing is so sharp. The performances are airtight and David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin are at the peak of their powers with this film, right? In a lot of ways, it's a perfect movie, right? And not to mention the soundtrack, the cinematography, I could go on and on and on. This is just an incredible movie from front to end. It's one of the most rewatchable movies as well. A lot of times a movie that's this thought-provoking and and well-written, it's like, it's not something I'm going to watch all the time. Not something I can just throw on whenever I feel like. But these characters not only are so well-written and so smart, but they're something, they're, they're characters I want to watch and I want to live with and I want to see their story progress. And, and I could watch this movie over and over and over. Tremendous, as good as it gets, The Social Network. Uh, but yeah, that's everything for this week. John, where can anybody find us? We are at Screen Off Script on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And hey, if you've got 20 seconds at the end of the show today, leave us a rate, review us. It really goes a long way on helping our show get found by new audiences. Awesome. Thank you for checking us out this week. Take care.